Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today we are excited to have Alex Chisholm joining us. Alex is a physiotherapist with over 30 years of clinical experience. She received her postgraduate certificate in multidisciplinary pain management from the University of Alberta. She is one of the executives on the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association and was part of the working group that helped create the Chronic Pain Toolkit with Physiotherapy Alberta. She is a fellow of the Alberta Clinical Hypnosis Society, previously the Canadian Federation of Clinical Hypnosis, and is a member of the Alberta Pain Society's planning committee for their annual pain conference. In addition, she is a certified Comfort Talks trainer. Alex currently works on the Burns and Plastics team at the Foothills Medical Center, where she pursues her passion for burn survivor rehabilitation and has taught nationally and internationally on pain, hypnosis, and pain management techniques. In this episode, we talked about what hypnosis is, how it can help patients, practical considerations when using hypnosis, and the power of therapeutic alliance and word choice. Enjoy! Hi Alex, thank you so much for being on Paincast and talking about the topic we're talking today. I'm very excited to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. To start off, can you introduce who you are, what you do, and what a typical week looks like for you? Sure. My name is Alex Chisholm. I'm a physiotherapist. I work at the Foothills Hospital on the Burns Plastics team. I'm part-time. And uh, I guess a typical week for me would be right now it's on outpatients. So we're very fortunate. Our burn center uh, is supported by the firefighters. We are very lucky. And we have both an outpatient clinic and an inpatient clinic. So our inpatients transition to our outpatient clinic. Plus, we will see any referral from the whole city that's an outpatient or even southern Alberta that's an outpatient. And on our burn unit, the other sort of side of our burn unit is also plastics. So we see a lot of head and neck reconstructions, anything that requires plastics intervention. Um, so our team will rotate between inpatients, outpatients, and plastics. And right now I'm on outpatients. So that is my typical week. That's very cool. Today we're going to talk about hypnosis. What got you into hypnosis and this type of therapeutic approach? I sort of fell into it, to be quite honest. I had twins. They were early. And one of them had or both of them actually had significant sleep apnea. I kept telling the doctors that my kids never slept. And they said, you know, I'm sure they do. But it turned out that Kiara stopped breathing about 200 times a night. And that's why she never, ever slept because she kept waking up. And as a mom, you get a little bit desperate when you've had no sleep. And we found out that she had both central and obstructive sleep apnea. We were struggling with CPAP, which is, if you can imagine, a little kid trying to get them to wear CPAP. We even had Santa come to the house bringing a whole headgear that Mrs. Claus had made, and she still wouldn't wear this thing. It was a nightmare. And we had psychology involved, and we, you know, it's important you breathing clearly. 
Um, and one day I was at my dad's and my dad has a very wide interest and he had a book on multiple personality disorder sitting on the shelf and I don't know why I picked it up. And it said in one altar, you could have a different sort of physiology than another. So you might need glasses in one personality and not in another. You might be allergic to something in one and not in another. And that just blew my mind because I was like, that blew away everything I thought about how things worked. I thought, well, if that could happen, is there any way to control your breathing? Like, could we do that? And then I thought, well, I wonder if hypnosis could do that. So we asked the psychologist and they said, possibly. But he said, I don't actually treat kids with hypnosis. I don't know anybody in a city that does. So I thought being a desperate mom, I thought, well, then I'm going to go learn. So I took a two-week course on hypnosis and used it with my daughter. She got off her CPAP. I have no idea if she would have grown out of it or if it was hypnosis. But as a mother, not scientific, I just didn't care. I just wanted her to be better. But I got fascinated with it. It was really, really interesting. And one day at work, I had a patient who had been very badly burned, very well-educated man severely badly burned lost most of his fingers he had an abdominal compartment syndrome he could no longer eat because he'd lost his esophagus and he just said i'm done with physio i'm done with everything i i refuse all treatment and i asked him because i thought obviously he's not going to do his physio would you like to use some hypnosis for your pain and i was fascinated and what his brain could do, because really we are the coach and guide. It's the patient's brain that creates the experience. And for him, that was a pivotal moment where he realized he could have some control because up to that point, he felt like he had none. And for him, he would use the stubs of his fingers to imagine he was going into a lake and the stub of his thumb was him going into that to numb him. So he could then do his rehab. And in the end, he was able to go home. And for me, that was just such a fascinating view of one, what can your brain do? And two, how can we help patients when he'd had all the drugs he could have and we were sort of at a standstill? And I was just fascinated and kept learning from there. So that's sort of how I first started using it at work. I didn't learn it for work, but when I learned more about what it could do, I saw how that fit with what we as physios do, empowering our patients and giving them the tools to self-manage. How many years have you been using hypnosis? Oh, I'm aging myself, but age is a privilege because your alternative is not so good. <laughs> if you don't age, it's not you're not here. So I've been using it for 19 years. I was thinking that before the podcast. So I've used it for a long time because my daughter, who's now doing her master's, she it was her that we started using this for. So it's been a long time. Wow. To orient our audience to what we're talking about, about this powerful tool, what is hypnosis? So that's a really good question because people will ask you, what is hypnosis? And I think maybe later on we'll get into the power of words, but I will typically introduce it to a patient as a state of focused attention. Essentially, it's a brain exercise, just like a physio would give you leg and arm exercises. This is a brain exercise. If you ask like the American Psychological Association, they'll say it's a state of consciousness involving focused attention and decreased peripheral awareness characterized by a capacity to respond to suggestions, increased capacity to respond to suggestions. So I will liken it to when my husband is watching hockey, he is completely entranced. You can do anything or say anything. He does not hear you. 
He has no awareness. There's anybody else in the room is completely focused and he has no awareness of what's going on around him. In some ways that is a form of trance, but this is trance that we utilize for the patient's goals, for the things that they want. And they always maintain control because one of the myths of hypnosis is that somebody else controls you and that creates a lot of fear. So typically the way I explain it along is with it being a brain exercise and focused state of attention is I liken it to going driving. So if I'm the passenger, I may have the map of where to go, but the driver has the wheels. My patient's the driver. They can follow my suggestion or not follow my suggestion. So if we want to get to wherever I have the map for, we need to follow my suggestions. But you always have control in hypnosis. The patient always retains control. That's really important to distinguish between some of the myths of hypnosis and clinical hypnosis. The patient retains control, but you're the coach and the guide. Mm-hmm. And we were talking a little earlier about this, and I had said I've read quite a bit about hypnosis and still have a trouble having a solid idea of what it is. And a part of the reason you suggest is that even in the literature, there is no solid answer about what it is. What's the debate around definition of hypnosis? What are the points of contention? I think the points are contentioners because there's no sort of test. People will do lots of things like, can your hand levitate? Can you, there are hypnotizability scales that they administer when they're doing research, but it is very difficult to say hypnosis is one thing. It's kind of like saying exercise to a certain extent. We all, how would you define exercise? Is it movement? Because some people will say, don't use the word exercise because that brings back thoughts of pain for some people use the word movement. But exercise could be one rep of one quads or, you know, dead, you know, powerlifting. So hypnosis has a wide range, but I would say my definition is that focused attention with a therapeutic goal. So it is not passive, it's active. You're actively wanting to change physiology and your goal is whatever your patient's goal is. So I think the debate is because people see stage hypnotists When I first got trained, one of the people that trained me also trained faith healers. So it was fascinating to see how something could be used in an interesting way, as well as in what I would see as a clinically relevant and useful way. So there's a lot of studies, especially the University of um, Washington, I believe, they've done a lot of research on it. And it's just there's so much misinformation and misunderstanding and partly because there's no one test to say you're in trance or out of trance. It's very clear when somebody's a, you know, talking like we are now, but when somebody's in trance, you can be in light trance or deep trance. And really, the deeper you are into trance, the more you can control your physiology. So that's how I look at it. The deeper we can get somebody into trance and more relaxed, the more self-focused they are on their internal experience, the more you can alter physiology. And I'll give you an example. So people often wonder, is it the same as imagination? Derbyshire did a really good study where he looked at if people experience pain, you had them hypnotically experience pain and you had them imagine the pain. The parts of their brain that lit up when they had hypnotically experienced pain and had pain were the same, but it was different if they just imagined to have pain. So we know it's different from imagination. The other thing that we know is If you have a placebo that creates an analgesic effect, if we give you naloxone, the pain comes back. 
But if you have hypnotically induced analgesia, it does not come back. So it's a different mechanism. So do we understand all these mechanisms? No, we don't. But are, can they potentially be very beneficial to our patients? Yes, they for sure can. Okay, so my understanding with hypnosis is that we're trying to induce physiological change in line with the patient's goal through a state of concentration that increases the ability to take suggestions. Yes. So you want them to be able to tune out the outside world. It's very difficult in a somewhere like an intensive care unit to do hypnosis because there are so many interruptions. So you need to be able to get them into a situation where they're deep enough in their own focused attention that they will ignore all the paging because for sure you get them into trance and you get that page come to the desk. You need a way to inoculize them against all those sounds. I've even one time we were recording a session for a patient and we recorded it on her cell phone and the tornado warning went off <laughs> right by her ear on her cell phone. So one of the things you need to do is get them into trance deep enough that they can ignore those things, which is very different than if you're doing a guided imagery. If somebody's doing guided imagery with just much more generic and not so individually tailored, typically you'd be aware about those other things that are going on around you. But when somebody's in trance and feels safe and is wanting to stay in trance, they are able to ignore those other sounds around them and stay focused on what it is that they want to focus on. And our job is to guide them there. Yeah, just for clarification, trance is the state of increased concentration or ultimate concentration. Yes. So we use hypnosis to get them into trance. And in trance is when you can physically feel the experience of, say, floating or less pain or, you know, your pain melting away or self-esteem or feel love or whatever it is you're wanting your patient to feel that it's in that trance, but you utilize hypnosis to get them into trance. Mm -hmm. So obviously, this is within the scope of physiotherapists because you are using it. But is it actually more in the scope of psychotherapists because it involves that psychology aspect, that change of state? So my argument would be, I realize it's out the box. There is no legislation that controls who can do hypnosis or not. It is not a controlled intervention. I would argue that we understand the physiology of pain better in most situations. And I'll give you an example. I just recently taught a day and a half course on hypnosis that was for dentists, doctors, nurses, psychologists, social workers, get some psychiatrists in there. And I, because I tend to change what I teach based on the audience, I gave out the neurophysiology pain questionnaire because I kind of wanted to see everybody in the, in the course said, I already treat pain. It was fascinating, somewhat depressing to learn people's current pain knowledge could use some work. And I think physios that are interested in pain, typically because so much of what we do revolves around pain, that's a large part of our knowledge base. So we are able to use what we learn and know about pain in hypnosis. We are not treating anything, and this is very important, we do not treat anything with hypnosis that we cannot treat outside of hypnosis. So if you come to me and you are coming to me because you have anxiety and depression, I'm not going to see you with 
for that because that's not something I as a physio would treat. So with hypnosis, we can only treat something that we would normally treat within our scope. So as long as it's within the scope of physiotherapy, we can use this tool. But if it's something outside the scope that we shouldn't treat anyways, we shouldn't be doing it. That's my opinion anyways. So I will never treat something that's outside of scope. And also I would never treat undiagnosed pain because sometimes pain is a very valid warning signal. I have appendicitis. So you need to make sure that it is appropriate to treat and that the pain is not undiagnosed. And there's a difference between chronic low back pain, we don't know the exact cause, and somebody with acute undiagnosed chest pain, for instance. You know, I'm a lady, I feel nauseous, I'm tired, I keep getting this arm pain. You know, could, could you treat me? No, we're going to go to the doctor first, check that out, and then you can come back and see me. So it's only treating things that we would treat within scope. That's very helpful. And I think, too, as physios, we never treat a joint. We treat a person. Like, I don't think there's any physio I know. I went into physio to treat toes or knees. No, you went into physio to treat patients. So I think we all already treat the whole person because you're going to figure out, okay, why did they not do their exercises? Is it because they have no time? I don't like to say they're non-compliant. The way I like to look at it is, okay, I need to figure out what those barriers are. So together we can work to eliminate them. So I think as physios, we already look at the whole person. This is just a different way of looking at that whole person. Wonderful. I think this is really touching on how hypnosis is addressing all the biopsychosocial of a person because it requires understanding of pain, requires understanding of physiology, but also considering the whole person. I wonder if you can elaborate a little more on how hypnosis can really address biopsychosocial. One of the things, if somebody came to you with pain, and for me, it might be, a, say, it's a burn patient that comes to me with pain. The reason they have pain is they've got a nociceptive driver. They have a burn. They might have a graft. And those things are giving them a lot of nociceptive input. They may be terrified of how they're going to look. That fear creates more danger for them, and that will make their pain worse. They may feel isolated. Everybody stares at me. Anywhere I go, people stare at me. I feel alone. We know Naomi Eisenberger's done some work that their social isolation has a neurological overlap with physical pain when you look at it. And so if those people feel alone, they feel scared, and they have a nociceptive driver, all those things are coming together to create that pain experience, the biopsychosocial. In hypnosis, we can take them into an experience where their pain can reduce. They can feel belonging and feel less fear. So sometimes that requires a lot of thought. Hypnosis, in my opinion, is always an interactive. It is never me deciding for you. It's me sitting down, learning what will work for you. What makes you feel safe? How can I take you there or help you go there? I need to understand what that is for you. So it's really important to have trust. If they trust you, they will tell you. And if they don't trust you, you're basically going blind. But you want a roadmap in your head of where you would like that patient to go. Because to truly treat pain, which is a whole brain experience, you need to think of how do I hit each of those things? How do I hit what they're feeling, both physically and emotionally? Because pain is always physical and emotional all of the time, even when there is a clear nociceptive driver to that. 
Absolutely. And there are some literature, as we have talked about it, how it affects areas of the brain. And I thought that really highlights how this is not only about a psychological treatment. Exactly. So if you look at the insula, prefrontal cortex, thalamus, cortical connectivity, somatocentric cortex, the brain part. And so the insula is looking at, are you safe? You know, what do you need for survival? So if you give the suggestion, you are safe, you're floating at the right temperature for you, for instance, if they wanted to be floating. When somebody knows that they're safe, that's allowing that insula to have that information. When you say the right temperature for you, I don't know if you want to be in a cold bath or lake or a warm one, especially if you're burned. So when I say the right temperature for you, the person will have their own, you know, can make their own choices. So prefrontal cortex is trying to make sense of what they're feeling. So if you say something like the feeling that you're experiencing means that it's healing and that dressing is doing its job. I don't have to do anything now. I don't have to get up and rip off my dressings because what's happening is what's meant to be happening. The thalamus is sort of a relay station. And if you can say something like turning down your discomfort, one of the things about knowing pain science is descending noxious inhibitor control. Sometimes if people experience more pain, they can have less pain overall. So if you have them experience pain, but they trust you, you can turn their pain up and then you can turn it down. So in their mind, they can imagine a pain dial and actually turn that down. So it's truly fascinating what the patient can do, depending on your suggestion, which parts of the brain you target. But it's always essential, in my opinion, after they've come out of trance to go back to saying, look what your brain did. I didn't do it. You did it. Your brain's amazing. Because that gives them that sense, which is valid, of control. It is only me that guides them. It's their brain that does it. And I will always ask them afterwards, what did you like? What worked for you? What didn't work for you? So it's never a one-time deal. What could I do differently next time? Sometimes you count into trance. Some people will say, I didn't like it when you counted down. I want to count up. Okay, I'll do it differently. So it is always a back and forth between what worked for them and what didn't work for them. And for instance, if you're focusing on the somatosensory cortex, so where it is in my body, some people will say, well, I want to move the pain to my little finger. So that's targeting that somatosensory cortex. Some people might want to say, well, I want to transform it from this sensation to that sensation. When you give those suggestions, you're targeting that part of their somatosensory cortex is what they feel, where they feel it. So pain intensity, location. So kind of in my head, I have a sort of a list of the things that I go through based on what the patient has told me and what their goals are. But it always is looking at the whole person their whole experience, because it's never just one experience. And you can't just distill it down to something simple, especially when the person in front of you has a complex injury. That is very cool. How long does the effect of hypnosis last? So obviously, the patient can reach that trance state and dial the pain up or down, switching pain locations, pain sensations. Does that end when the trance state is ended? It's a really good question. So some people are great at hypnosis. They're really highly suggestible. Some people are not. So there's some literature, um, Montgomery, I think, did it, that looked at how much does hypnotizability, how deeply you go into trance, affect the outcome. 
So when I started hypnosis, I was a heretic. I'm a heretic for a lot of things, but I was a heretic because I thought this is ridiculous. Giving these people these scales that measure how good you are at the scale versus, in my opinion, how good you are at trance seems to me like a waste of time because who in the hospital or even in physio ever has enough time? I haven't met a physio yet that says, oh, you know, I have nothing to do. So I thought it seems a lot more sensible to me to do a session and see how it went. And so now they believe that the hypnotizability only attributes to 6% of your outcome. So to me, that 94% has nothing to do with it. So I'm, I, I do, as they now recommend, use it clinically, see whether the patient liked it or not, and go from there. So some people are very good at learning. The more you practice, the better you get. So it's like anything. Those Just the plasticity of your brain, the more you do it, the better you get at it. So the more somebody practices it and the more sessions they have, the better they it works. I would say there's rare patients that you do it once and you never need it again. Most people need to repeat it. That's why typically now we'll do a voice recording on their cell phone. So then they can repeat it, not the interactive part, because that you need to be there for, but a different session where they can practice going into trance. So if it's a burn and something unpleasant, I will suggest that they practice it without the dressing changes to start. That's what the literature says. People that are motivated do the best because they've tried all the drugs and it wasn't necessarily working. And also practicing in a better environment makes it easier for a time when it's more difficult. So I suggest they never do it right away. On occasion, I have intervened and done some trance with people. I distinctly remember this gentleman who was trached and he was getting the dressing changed and it was excruciating. He, you know, you cannot talk when you are trached, but you can hear noises and it was excruciating. And when you see somebody in that much pain, it is also difficult on nursing and it is difficult on you to witness that. So typically I always get consent, I explain it. But in this day, I just thought watching where he was was unbearable. And on the list on the wall, they had written out his name, what he liked to be called, things he liked. So I just used that and started saying, focus on me, focus on my voice. And I remember thinking, I wonder if I'm doing the right thing. And after about 10 minutes, he looked over at me blew me a kiss and went back into trance. And I remember thinking, I just thought I was going to cry because it had made such a difference. So typically you want to set them up for success. Like any physio goal, you want to set your patient up for success. So you don't give them a goal you know they can't achieve. You always give them something you know they can do. So in trance is no different. Like our principles are exactly the same. Self-management goal is for them not to need you anymore set them up so that they are successful in trance and then you can make it, you know, practice it. But on occasion in difficult situations, we might have to do a little bit of a workaround. But most people do need to practice and most of the literature says they do need to practice it. The most successful people are the people that are motivated. If a patient says to me, I don't want to do hypnosis or I don't want to do this brain exercise, I respect that. So Elvira Lang's done a lot of work on using hypnosis on acute settings in the hospital. She's an interventional radiologist from the States, actually. And she said the literature shows that even the act of saying no is an act of regaining control. Because how many times does a patient get to say, I don't want to do something? Especially in a big hospital, lots of the times they have to. We ask for consent. But just saying no 
gives them some control. I will often find people will come back and ask me more about it later. But if they say no, we don't do it. I respect it just like any other intervention. But it does require practice. The more you do it, the better you get. There are occasional patients that, you know, they go, no, I'm good. I don't need it anymore. And I'm like, wow. But most people need to practice. It's amazing. I've bet to hear that they say, I'm good. I don't need it anymore. Right? Yes, it is. That is the minority of people. But it is incredibly, like, I think one of the things about this is patient has to trust you. One of my patients about five years ago was a psychologist. I interviewed him afterwards and he said, you know, I've been for regular physio, his quotation. And he said, I don't have to trust the physio as much, but to go into hypnosis and trance, you need to have a much closer rapport and you really need to trust the therapist. So I think trust is really key. And it's also incredibly rewarding. Like it doesn't work all of the time. And even when it doesn't work, I remember a lady, she needed a knee aspiration. And the nurse had said, can you see this lady? Because it's always been a bad experience. So I was working with a doctor I'd never worked with before. You know, people think that, you know, it can be awkward because people wonder, what are you doing? Worked with this lady to do some hypnosis while they did the knee aspiration. I thought it was a disaster. I didn't think it worked very well. Came back to the desk, you know, I, my tail between my legs. I was feeling <laughs> really awkward. So I said to the doctor, I said, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. That didn't go well. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, it didn't work well. She said, she didn't scream. What are you talking about? I'm like, what do you mean she didn't scream? She goes, oh, she always screamed. She didn't scream. It was great. And I was like, oh, my God. She normally screamed. She said, yeah, that was great. So sometimes your perception is that did not go how it was going to go in my head, but the patient may still have benefit. It's also very rewarding when people will send you a picture later on of their safe place because you're in your head trying to imagine where they want to be. So one of the things I say to my patient is when you're out of here, when you're home and you get to go back to that place, send me a picture. Because what does that do? That gives them the expectation you're going to get out of here. It also gives them the expectation you're going to get better and be able to go back to that place. And you're going to be well enough to send me a picture. So those expectations go into their brain as to I am going to heal and get there, which is super helpful. But when you get that picture back, it's helpful for the therapist in a selfish way because you go, wow, look at that. Look how great those people are doing now. So those are my probably my most treasured pictures of seeing that. And it might be some of these safe places home. So you get a picture of their living room. So it is something that requires practice. Each patient is different. But even if they say no, it's still worth giving them that opportunity. I'm sure that's an emotional experience. Yeah, I think. And also when patients occasionally, they will cry. And I will ask them afterwards why. And they said it was just like burn pain is, I, I, I hope I never experience it. But they say when I can escape for a little bit, even a bit of relief just made them feel this emotion. So I think that that is also rewarding. It doesn't always happen. Like some people, it does not work for them. And we just accept that that is how that is. 
but it is another option that you can give, but it does require you to be able to work with your patient, have a supportive team, because it doesn't take very much for somebody to go in and, and blow away all your hard work. If they make, if, if somebody in authority makes a negative comment that you're sort of stuck. So I'm fortunate that I work with a wonderful team, but that is important because it's whoever's beliefs it is. They, those beliefs that correlate to pain are very strong, especially subconscious beliefs. So you mentioned a couple of times that trust is very important. There has to be a deeper level of trust in order for hypnosis to work, in order for patients to tell you what you need to know. How do you establish that trust? I think the work that I uh, learned through Dr. Lang was very helpful. She talked about both verbal and nonverbal language. So trust is respect, respecting my patient. And I think uh, there's, um, I'm not sure if that's a cartoon and I don't really know who came up with it. So I can't acknowledge them. So my apologies is there's a picture of a patient down at the bottom of a pit and the therapist is sort of yelling down and asking them. And then next to that, there's a picture of the pit with a ladder and the therapist has gone into the pit to see what it's like for them. Trust, I think, is when the patient feels like you're in the pit with them, that you see them as a person and you care that they're a person, they're not just a number. We often call the, the patient gown an invisible cloaking device because you lose who you are as soon as you put that patient gown on. You don't, you're no longer Mr. Smith. You're like patient 21 and 32A with the burn. So I think trust is when you see past. We call it a superpower. Do you have a superpower to see the person under the gown? So I think they trust you. And when you listen to them, the nonverbal of even simple things like sitting, how often do we stand over a patient in the bed? When we're sit down at their level and look at them, that builds trust. So the nonverbal language is very important. And for me, if I have a very angry, upset patient and I'm not sure how to handle it because you walk in the room and they're pissed off at everybody, that nonverbal is where I start because it sort of gives me a thing I can go through to attempt to build connection with them. Usually, how long does it take to build that level of trust before you even introduce maybe the possibility of doing hypnosis? I guess it depends on the patient, really. Sometimes a therapist might say, could you come see this person for me? And then I will talk about it right away because that's what's been asked of me. Usually, I'll wait until I know the patient pretty well because pills obviously are easier. There's a lot of pros and cons there, but that's the traditional system. So if it's controlling their pain and they don't need this, you wouldn't offer it if that's not something they're interested in. But I think some people it's quicker to build connection. I do find the nonverbal is super important. Learning how to have that connection nonverbally really does help. Um, and the patient usually doesn't realize that that's what you're doing, but I also find it helps me as well. And just listening to their story, that's a really important part of the trust building. So it really all depends on the situation, I would say. If there's no one answer to that, unfortunately. Practically speaking, patients come in and out. So there is a length of stay in the hospital and then they have to get out. Do you ever consider, you know, the amount of time you have with this patient and you want to try to speed up that relationship building process in order for them to potentially try this before they 
get out kind of thing? I guess I attempt to have that nonverbal stuff fairly quickly. So I interviewed another burn about pain just because we're going through our making a pain toolkit and I was trying to find an interesting way to present it. So I did a structured interview and I learned so much. One of the things she said that I've never, ever forgotten is she says, I can tell if somebody cares with the air they walk through the door. Literally, the way you walk through the door, she can tell if they care or not. And that there were staff that when they came through the door, made her pain worse before they touched her because they scared her. So pain is always biopsychosocial. Her pain was worse with no increase in nociceptive driver. It was all this, more fear. So she hurt worse. So I think a lot of the literature on, you know, how to have center yourself, have less burnout, all that kind of thing says outside the door, stand and take a couple of minutes, just or, you know, 30 seconds before you go in if it's a difficult patient. I never really got that before. But when she said, I can tell when somebody walks in with the air, they walk in the door. I was just like, holy crow. So I don't think I ever consciously think, oh, I have to build rapport. It's just always something. If I've heard somebody's difficult, and when I say difficult, they are struggling to align what the patient wants with what the care team thinks is appropriate. And sometimes, you know, it's valid. Their values don't align with traditionally what other people would think. And they're allowed to have a different opinion. But one of the things that Dr. Lang taught me, which took me years to have the guts to do, actually, was to match their language. So we had a frostbite patient who, doesn't this sound like an invitation, Alex, all the other nurses come out of the room crying, would you go see them? I'm thinking, so everybody that goes in that room comes out crying, you want me to go see them? That doesn't sound like something I really want to do. But went in to see this guy. And he was swearing up a storm. And I remember Dr. Lang saying, match his language. If he's swearing, you swear. And I thought, you know, everything I learned in physio school said, don't do that. But like the last five nurses have come out of here and they're crying. And I, so I said, F yes. I F and get yeah. And there was this silence because I thought, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. And then he says, you're right. I'm sorry. And then there was silence in the room. They all went, he said, sorry. Well, you know what that is? That's getting in the pit. Because you know when you look down in the pit and you're looking at the patient, but it's not, you get down in the pit and they feel like you can relate to them. And then he settled down and I was like, oh my golly. So you don't have to do that. You don't keep swearing. But sometimes it's just enough that they go, you get me. And that is what you are wanting to do is understand who is that person in front of you? Who are you? See past the gown. What is it that's upsetting them and what can we do about it? Sometimes you can do absolutely nothing, but sometimes you can do something. So I remember Dr. Lang saying they had a difficult patient when they were difficult, again, not aligning with what they needed to do and she needed to do. She was so upset about her handbag. So she actually said, go get her handbag, bring it in and put it under the OR table. And she settled right down. She heard what mattered to the patient. So sometimes matching the language which you don't have, I mean, you might have to do that once every three years. So it's not often, but it amazed me what the power was in that. For me, that was a learning. I was frightened to do it because it was way out my comfort zone, but it was effective. Yes, I've shocked you, haven't I? (laughs) Oh, I'm sure listeners shocked too. There's actually literature showing swearing reduces pain. So it's fascinating. 
if you take somebody's hand and you do the cold presser test, if they're allowed to swear, their threshold is much higher. So I will say to my patients, swear away. There's literature show that helps. I'm fine with that. It does not bother me a bit. And I'll go, are you serious? Yeah, I am totally serious. So when it comes to pain, you want to look at that whole thing. So there actually is literature saying swearing can increase pain threshold. So I'm good with it. If my patient needs to swear, that's all right. Mm. Swearing, not necessarily at the person. Yeah. There's a distinction there. Right. You've mentioned also it doesn't work on everyone. Is it because that trust has not been developed or there are other factors that affect this? I think um, some people just have a better ability to go into trance than others do. I think we don't know what the X factor really is. Sometimes it's that they still have fears, like they are frightened that you will control them. They will, you know, and so a lot of times what makes a big difference is taking the time at the front end to figure out what questions they have. So they need to feel that I can ask, will you control me? Can you do this? And, I, and usually my answer is I wish because otherwise my husband would bring me breakfast in bed and flowers every day because I could actually get him to do what I wanted. But it does not work that way. A patient in trance will not do something they would not do out of trance. So whatever they're doing has to align with their values. You cannot ask them to do something they would not normally do. I remember listening to a podcast or a webinar about somebody who had actually gone to a stage hypnotist and he had a very strict religious background, but he was a very big extrovert. So he was very keen to be on the stage and he did everything that the hypnotist asked him to do. But at one point they asked him to imagine he was drinking a beer and he just wouldn't do it because in his background, you don't drink alcohol. So even though he was in trance doing all these things that most of us would be mortified to do, that was okay with him, but doing something that didn't fit with his values wouldn't. So it's very important to understand, allay their fears, have trust, but some people just are better at it than others, and that's okay. If this is a technique that doesn't work for them, you just stack the deck so it will work better for them, but you don't need to take it personally if it doesn't work. And also trauma histories are more, you know, if somebody's been in trauma, and I make the assumption everybody has. So treat everybody carefully and give them as much control as possible. What percentage of patients would you use hypnosis on? So the rapport and the language, everyone. Hmm. Typical trance, the minority. So it depends where I'm working. If I'm working on the burn unit itself, you may need it much more. If I'm working on outpatient, I may do it very differently. One of the things they've been able to show is if you're like inserting an IV, warning about the stimulus ahead of the stimulus makes that person have more pain. So if I know that I'm going to be doing something that might be uncomfortable, if I have consent to say I'm debriding a wound and I have consent, so I've already established that it's okay to do what we're doing, but I know that this might be more tender, I might use a confusional technique. So the confusional technique that they used in this hypnosis trial was they said, has your bite gone to the pool yet? Well, the patient's going, what? You're done. So if you're putting the IV in, you're done. If I had to snip something, it's done. So that is a type of hypnosis that is more just language choice. Language choice about, you know, I'm not going to try and get you out of bed. I'll help get you out of bed. If I'm introducing, would you like to use hypnosis? I didn't, I don't ever say, do you want to try? 
The reason for that is, like the Nike commercial doesn't say just try. It says just do it, right? If I say we're going to be done, I'll try to be done this answer in 15 minutes. You're going, oh, she might talk for 30. But if I say I'm going to stop talking in five minutes, you think I'm going to be done. So the word try insinuates failure. My biggest change of my practice was when I learned that that word had was so powerful. And I think a lot of OTs are more, at least when I was sort of learning, were much more aware of language than I was. I did not actually believe that word had that much power. So when I went on one of these courses, it taught us to avoid that word. And I just thought, you know, this seems ridiculous to me. <laughs> How can one word make that much difference? So I did a little test. One half of the ortho unit that I was on then, I said, I'm going to try and get you up today. The other half, I said, I'm going to help get you up today. By the end of the week, I was convinced I never use, I, I avoid the word now. Because if I say I'm going to try and do this so it doesn't hurt you, me saying I'm going to be gentle is a very different message. So that one word, I am careful with every patient that I see. The nonverbal language, I do it with every patient I see. I don't use the word pain. I say, how's your discomfort? I don't tell somebody it's going to hurt. I'm going to say, we're going to gently clean your wound now. Or the therapy assistant is going to help me gently clean your wound now so it can heal. Versus I'm going to take your bandages off and it's really going to hurt. That just makes it worse. It gives them anxiety and gives them more pain. So that nonverbal and language choice, that's a with everybody thing. Specific hypnosis, that's an individualized if the patient requires that thing. And this tends to be used more with inpatients, but also has been used with outpatients as well. I think there is good intention behind warning patients ahead of the unpleasant experience. Of course, 100%. That's how I got taught. 100%. I was taught to warn people of impending pain. And I believed, and people still believe, they're doing the right thing. And we all, as healthcare practitioners, want to do what's best for our patients. That's why we're in, we do what we do. And it was really difficult when I first heard that to get my head around because it felt like you were telling me to do something completely opposite to what I've been taught to do. But the literature is fairly clear that when you warn somebody about pain, they're going to have pain because the assumption that's underlying that is everybody experiences pain. So the studies where they say, I'm going to give you the numbing anesthetic now, those people have less pain than I'm going to give you the anesthetic, it will burn and sting. Because you are making an assumption of the experience that patient will experience. And what you have just taught them is what they're going to experience. If you allow them to experience it, you've got, already got consent for them to have the IV. You could go and say, okay, I'm using IV as an example, but it could be, you know, you're bandaging two legs or something. Which leg would you like me to start with? What have I given them? Control and choice. When you have less control, you feel more pain. So I've given them control, right? I've asked if I can take the bandage off, but they know you're going to take the bandage off. When you've told them you're going to be gentle, you know that they perceive you're going to take as much care as possible. So the argument Dr. Lang would make is it's unethical to tell them they're going to have pain because you're making an assumption that you do not know if that's actually true. How many times when somebody's distracted, do they notice it? Often they don't. And we know from that confusional study too that people don't necessarily experience the pain that you think. It is a lot dependent on belief and judgment. But it's very hard to change that, really hard to change that because we've been 
told that's what we're meant to do and it's part of good patient care. But it's not withholding risks. Like you cannot do a treatment and not tell the patient if there's a risk. It's how you frame them that's important. So you still give them the data, the information to make an informed choice, but you don't make an assumption about what they're going to feel. And it's just changing what you're saying, per se. Yeah, we're going to link the IV confusional study in the episode description. So audience who are interested can go read that. It's very interesting to see the results. So with your burn patients, if you're going to suggest hypnosis, how would you word your suggestion? I think I usually say I have a special interest in pain. And I've learned either a brain exercise or hypnosis, which are essentially the same thing I would say to them. And I think you'd be a good candidate. So I usually figure out why I think they would be a good candidate. You've shown, you know, you're intelligent. You've learned this. I think you have the ability to do really well with this. Is this something you would like to experience? And I make sure they know it's not instead of drugs. It's in addition to the things they're already taking. Because the fear is you're going to take away something that makes me feel better and use this instead. So what does that? Increases threat, increases pain. So I need them to understand that this is an additional tool. And also, I will say, you know, it's also something that if you like it and enjoy it, we can do a recording on your phone. And that way, you can use it whenever you want. You could use it in the nighttime. If you practice a few times using dressings, if you find that you're getting your spike in your pain and it's not time for your medications yet, you could use it then. So you're giving them a sense that they will have more control if they have it than others. It is a bit of a difficulty if you don't have a way to give them a recording of what you think is appropriate because patients that are socially disadvantaged, so a lot of patients that come in that may have got be homeless and have got burnt, they don't have cell phones necessarily. Some do, but some don't. And then you have to find another way to give them that recording on an iPad or something. But then they get to say yes or no. But you need to answer any questions they have and ask them, what do you know about hypnosis? And do you have any questions? And then we'll go through the fact that I don't control it, they control it, that I'm the coach, they're the person that does it. Instead of taking away their control, it actually gives them more control. And that's the thing people tend to like is anything that gives me more control, they tend to be keen on. But some people will say no, and that's okay. And usually if somebody asks me, like a healthcare provider says, why would you be doing that in a, like a negative connotation to it? My favorite thing to say is what data have you read that's led you to that conclusion? Because usually it's nothing. And I can say, would you like me to provide you some? Because, you know, oftentimes people think that they know what it is, but they've not read anything. And that can be harmful. If somebody goes in, I'm very fortunate where I work. I'm really lucky. But for me, that was a fear of hypnosis. How do I handle it when somebody says, you know, that's silly or why would you use that? Now that I have a way to handle that, I have more confidence. But it's certainly not appropriate for every patient at all. So would you be able to tell ahead of time what type of patient would be suitable for doing hypnosis? So you can tell typically if they are super confused they will not be good because they cannot follow directions. So you need somebody that can follow directions. So if they're in delirium, that doesn't work. If they have a psychotic break, I would not be doing that. Or there's quite a few psychiatric things. I always would go to my colleagues and say, I'm not, like I may have been asked to see them, but I'm not comfortable with it. So I would always get back up as to whether that's appropriate or not. 
if they have a really advanced dementia, it might be helpful in a moment, but there'll be no carryover because they will not remember it. So although a recording might be helpful, I don't really think they can learn in the same way in that situation. So there's people that you know that is much less likely to be helpful and probably not worth the time because it is time. Like you are putting time into it. So your session may be 20 to 30 minutes. So there's cost to that by you being there. So those types of clients or patients would be much less likely to benefit from it. There can also be carryover to staff. We had a young girl who quite a few years ago, and she had to get her nasojejunal tubes that went from her nose all to jejunum put in, and she had decided they tried to put it in and give them her, you have to be awake. They can't do it when you're asleep. And she'd had it tried to put down several times, and she just said, I'm done. You know, I don't care if I'm not going to be here anymore and I can't get any food. I'm done. And she had used hypnosis for pain and we went down and did it in the interventional radiology suite and what was interesting was afterward the other staff and I was super nervous because I didn't know anybody on this team at all they all said wow we all felt so much more relaxed like everybody felt more relaxed which was interesting because my focus was completely on her I hadn't focused at all on other people in the room other than you know I don't know these people I wonder what they're going to think but it was interesting when we came out and I remember another nurse coming up to me once and she said, Oh, it's you. And I'm like, I, I don't think I know this person. And she said, it's you. And I thought, well, I'm losing it. I've been at this too long. I don't know who she is. And she said, it's your voice. She said, I couldn't sleep the other night. And I remembered your voice for the recording and I used it. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So the patient was playing it on night shift when they were doing dressing changes and she was the night nurse. And because he'd used it quite a few times, she found it was soothing. So that's fascinating to me because it is stressful for a whole team to see somebody in pain. It's stressful for every member of the team when you want somebody in pain. So I don't think I could look at five people and say, this person's going to be good at it. I don't have that capacity. Maybe somebody could, but I'm not that person. But I could definitely say, I think this person is less likely. And if you have somebody that is craving opioids and that is you know they have an opioid use disorder that may be a lot more challenging and a lot more complicated in that situation but I can't look at you know typically a bunch and say that this one person is going to be better at it I don't have that ability. What do you do if the patient doesn't respond well to hypnosis? So usually I'll ask them do they want to do it again if their answer is no that's okay I respect that. Two, what did you like and what did you not like? So one of the typical things you do is take them to a safe place. But the most important part thing is it has to be their safe place, not yours. That requires communication. They have to help me understand what that safe place is. And the more of their senses that are dominant for them you can incorporate, the more real it will feel to them. So sometimes it's just that I took them to a place they decided they didn't want to be. Or it might be, well, you forgot to talk about this, and I really like that. Some people have said, well, when you emerge, so you, so there's an induction, which is the process of essentially getting into trance and getting someone ready, more typically more relaxed, but doesn't always have to be through relaxation. The phase in which the person experiences what they want to experience, and then emerge where you essentially bring them out of that trance, so they're they have normal awareness of what's going on around them. So. 
sometimes people will say, I didn't like that you counted me into trance from one to whatever and out the opposite way. I wanted it the other way around. I'm like, okay, we'll do it the other way around. So it's a discussion about what they liked and what they didn't like. Some people just say, no, I didn't like it. The vast majority have been very fortunate. I haven't had that experience very many times. So it's really a conversation and seeing how you can change it. Sometimes it's because you got interrupted so many times. But that's important that you learn how to build that in. If there's an interruption, which in a hospital there invariably is, you need to have thought ahead of time how to deal with that. So you will, if the sound of my voice, you'll focus on, you know, the sounds that are going on around you will be unimportant. It's the sound of my voice you'll focus on that will just guide you deeper and deeper off. If there's something repetitive, I actually will make that a deepener. So each time you hear a page, you go deeper and deeper, relax, and your pain will just fade more and more. So what that does is, it's called a post-hypnotic suggestion, is when the page happens outside of trance, it's a trigger to just go have that make them more relaxed. So you want to build those things in. You had mentioned a session can take 20 to 40 minutes. Is there an argument against that you could have done physical therapy, like getting them move, dangling at the bed, rather than just laying down, nothing, doing hypnosis? So my argument would be there that physiotherapy includes this. This is just non-traditional physiotherapy. And I think we're seeing a push to more psychologically informed physical therapy. And I think over the years, we're going to move away from what I learned in school many years ago as being what is effective to psychologically informed physiotherapy being effective. And I think that's exciting. What this does, in my opinion, is enables them to do those other things because you have somebody that is too sore, they're not going to sit up, they're not going to get up. And what does pain do to muscles? It can inhibit them, right? If you have too much pain, it inhibits that muscle. So it's hard for me to get that guy off of a bed because he's just too sore. So he has to be willing to work with you and know that if I'm sore in physio and I work really hard, when I go back to my room, I can do this and I can feel better. What have you given them? You've given them control. When they have control, they're more willing to work for you. So... This is never instead of, usually it's as well of. And you can build it in that they're imagining getting up and walking. You can build it into it that if you had, I had a guy that, this wasn't a burn, but it was a fellow who broke his hip and he just was not able to stand. Whenever he stood, it was too painful. And they, you know, it just wasn't working out. So what we did was we used, got him into trance. And the thing that took him deeper and deeper was holding onto the walker. So the sensation of its hand around the walker is the thing that helped him feel better. That was the trigger for less pain. And then he could get up and walk because that was the trigger for less pain. So it is enabling us to do the more traditional physio things. It's not instead of, it's an addition to those things. And you could make the argument that that extra time is a luxury. But if you gave that person a whole bunch more opioids, what happens? They're too sleepy to do any physio anyways, right? Because you can't wake them up. You can't rouse them. And because they're just, you know, out of it. And we also know that, you know, there's long-term risk to that. Plus, if people have large doses, thing that opioid-induced hyperalgesia. So this is just another option to allow you to do those things. And especially when you're doing, like, we in our outpatient area, if we're doing a more non-traditional thing, we don't have access to any painkillers. So sometimes me saying to my patient, imagine you won a million dollars. The only thing you can spend that on is a trip. Where would you go? Take me there now. 
So when I'm doing whatever I'm doing with their wound, what are they thinking about? They're describing to me that trip so I can feel like I'm being there. It doesn't really matter where they go. I just want them to be in their mind thinking about that while I've got their dressing done. So imagine we hide their hand so they can't see it. Take them into trance and have them work their hand. You're in the water. You're wherever you are and you're moving your hands. You can literally have them do that. So, you know, you can build all those things into it if you have the time and the ability and the appropriate patient. I see. Uh, So far, we've talked a lot about helping patients with a lot of pain, like extreme pain kind of situations. What about chronic pain? Is hypnosis helpful for that? Yep. Mark Jensen, he does amazing courses. I've been on his courses on chronic pain. And I think for chronic pain, it's something that you need repetitive practice. I believe that they showed that if a person can have a recording and do it at home, it's more effective. Like, so you go and you see this, the whoever's doing it with you, you can practice at home. But I think you need, I think one of them showed once a week for six or eight weeks, like doing it once for somebody who's had pain for years, it's highly unlikely to be effective. Now there's many different ways to do hypnosis. Some people will do it based on you're having a sensory experience at the time, more complex, advanced hypnosis would be working on somebody's self-esteem or their sense of anger. So uh, Mick Sullivan's done a bunch of work on perceived injustice. And sometimes what's quite helpful is working on that perceived injustice because perceived injustice increases pain. So for people that are a bit more complex, if you're looking at their perceived injustice, what can you do to help them get rid of that so they sort of move past it? You can do things like that in trance. Some people not very common would regress them to the first time they actually had that pain and what happened at that time so there's many different ways of doing hypnosis that can become a lot more intricate and a lot more interactive so those types of things are quite a bit more interactive and again that's kind of like saying exercise there's a wide range of hypnosis just like there's a wide range of exercises kind of like saying does a drug help well i mean pain meds there are many different pain meds And hypnosis is the same, but in my opinion, for something that's chronic, it tends to require them to practice it, to learn to have an effect on their body. It isn't something that I think is a one-time deal. And maybe some people could do that, but that's not something I think I would be able to do that in one time. So earlier on, we were talking about how hypnosis is trying to induce a physiological change in line with the patient's goal. And we're now talking about how hypnosis can be used in a chronic pain context. I'm wondering if hypnosis has only a short-term effect on pain where the pain is only reduced during the state of trance, or does it have a carry-over effect, uh, let's say, the patient will have to reduce pain uh, 30 minutes post trans or even after repetitive practice of hypnosis, their pain level actually slowly come down to even minimal pain. And I think that you see people that don't respond to it. And one of the big things is the motivation. So one of the things I think you see in the literature is more that they want it and they're motivated for it, they tend to respond better. But it tends to be, I think, with acute people, their pain will be less in trance. It will be less after trance. Oftentimes they can sleep when they haven't been able to sleep. But you usually, in 
acute settings will have another thing that precipitates pain, like we're ripping off your dress, well, taking off your dress, and they will perceive it to be ripped off. They're never ripped off, but to them, it may feel that way. So when the dressings come off, when you have to get washing done, when you have to move, that's another bump up in uh, nociceptive driver. Their pain might go up again. So they will need to use those techniques to bring it back down. So in a hospital, it tends to be like this. But typically, it's better than if they hadn't had it at all. With chronic pain, I think it's more of a, they'll feel much better in trance, but out of trance, it takes a time for that pain level to come back down. Now, some people will say that if you regress them to the first time they had it, they have miraculous results. Uh, that's not something I've seen substantiated in the literature. Maybe it's there, but I just haven't read that. So my belief is it's a more slower, gradual return. Like if somebody, you know, mindfulness can be effective, that sort of thing, the more that they do those stress management strategies, the more their pain tends to come down, those self-management things. So it's really a self-management tool for chronic pain. Yeah, that's really cool. Currently, I'm on placement and doing home care. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people we see in home care are older adults with various types of chronic pain. Yes. Some of them having debilitating chronic pain. Yes. And this can be well be a very excellent self-management tool other than giving them an exercise program this is not like this or that but if we it's have both. both totally absolutely you hit the nail on the head it's both and if you look at tasha stanton's work on when she looks at visual illusions and how their pain changes with a visual illusion that's what you're doing with hypnosis instead of needing the tech to do the visual illusion you're actually doing it with them and sometimes those people like that may choose i want to go pretend i'm running with my grandchildren that's what brings me joy sometimes having that escape just allows them to, okay, I'm going to do my exercise so I can do my sit to stands so I can get out with my grandkids. It's finding that key with that patient and what works for that person. But it is not replacing exercise with this. It's both. Do you have any experiences of using hypnosis on yourself? Oh, yeah. I used it for labor, but then they had to induce me. And when they decided to induce me the first time, and this comes to beliefs, right? The first time they had induced me with my first son, I apparently had had a trainee nurse and she put me in tetany and it was just not a very good experience. She was very dangerous. <laughs> so when they said they were going to induce me again, I was like, well, that was my past experience, which affects my pain beliefs. And I was like, okay, I'm doing great now, but I might not be if you do that again. Um, but I've used hypnosis myself. And most recently, unfortunately, I had to have a large core breast biopsy. Luckily it was fine, but they're not very fun. And for some reason, they could not give me the proper freezing. And so I used hypnosis for that. And I am incredibly grateful. I knew how to use that technique. That was super helpful for me. It made that much, much easier than it would have been without it. Mm -hmm. Would everyone trained in hypnosis be able to do that on themselves or not? So you can do it on yourself. The other option is there are apps like Elvira Lang, the interventional radiologist, has an app called Comfort Talk. And that script, the thing that they read, has been shown in the literature to reduce pain. So the problem is, how do you, when you look at apps, how do you know they're evidence-based apps versus I'm paying money for something that is well-marketed as opposed to is really effective? So for me, the app is super helpful. And the thing about if you can listen to an app, you're not having to work cognitively at the same time. You can just passively listen, which makes it a lot easier to go to a place you'd much rather be 
And that's a simple thing that you can say to a patient. You know, your body has to be here, but your mind does not. Where would you rather be? That's a very quick thing to say to a patient. So go there. But if you're having to think too much, it's hard to go there. So I think using an app like Comfort Talk is super helpful. Should patients be doing this without having a prior experience with a physiotherapist doing it with them? Yeah, I think Comfort Talk is an evidence-based app that's been well shown in literature to be effective. Individualized hypnosis is slightly different than something that's read from a script because they've also shown that reading from a script can be helpful to patients for procedural things, getting through biopsies, getting through MRIs, getting through you know, different types of unpleasant and painful procedures, we know that a script can be effective. So I think listening to something like Comfort Talk, you could have your patients listen to it without any training, because it is important to make sure that the literature would say that to do hypnosis, you need to be appropriately trained. And what they tend to mean by that is through a medical society, not through a place that trains lay hypnotists, because there's a very significant difference between being a regulated health professional and only training regulated health professionals and training lay people. There is an article, Moss in 2019, (laughs) talks about a fellow who got his cat uh, registered. So he called the cat Dr. Zoe de Cat and managed to register them with the National Guild of Hypnotists, the American Board of Hypnotherapy, the International Medical and Dental Hypnotherapy and the professional member of the American Association of Professional Hypnotists. And it was a cat. So therein lies the issue. You can have a very impressive list of all these places you belong to, but it is recommended that it's somewhere that trains medical professionals and that they require you to be part of a regulatory body to make sure that I don't go hang up my shingle to say I can treat something that is outside of the scope of physio, because that makes sure we all stay only treating things that we should be treating. So Canadian Hypnosis Society has an Ontario division, BC division, and Alberta has the Alberta Hypnosis Society. So it's recommended through something like that or through a member that belongs to them. And I'm sure there's potentially other places that are great that I just don't know about, but they make sure that it's, you know, there is some level of accreditation. That's great. So we're coming to an end of the interview, which was absolutely, I learned so much and was very impressed about hypnosis and its power. Do you have any concluding thoughts before we end off? I think my concluding thought would be that hypnosis is something that as physios, I think we can become trained in and that language and the power of language is something that as, as I've gone through the profession, I've become to believe more and more is powerful. So our words have a powerful effect, whether that's we say normal age-related changes in your spine or somebody says degeneration. Those words are very powerful. And even the word pain is powerful. Discomfort has a whole different meaning. So focused on therapeutic alliance and focused on our language I think that can change a lot and also you know being proud that physiotherapy is changing and we're bringing both the physical and looking at the whole person approach I guess is what I would say and I'm also thrilled that we have young people like you coming into this profession because it bodes well for the profession Tiffany thank you that's amazing 
Um, you mentioned you were teaching courses. Are you still doing that? I taught through the Alberta Clinical Hypnosis Society and may have an upcoming course with a social worker who teaches in grief, but we haven't really sort of made any decision about that. But yeah, it's fascinating to teach. I enjoy it. And I'm a little bit out of the box. I tend to teach the pain stuff with handcuffs and rubber TheraBand nerves and talk about 50 shades of gray and whips and make it not quite so boring. So I remember Judith Hunter, when I took my pain certificate said, you have to make pain not boring. So I work hard to make pain not boring. <laughs> if the audience have any questions or would like to learn more about this, where would you direct them? Um, well, if they want to get hold of me, probably LinkedIn is the easiest way to get hold of me. And um, for hypnosis, um, I guess people like Mark Jensen, Elvira Lang, looking up some of their articles would be a really good start to learn more about it. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for your time, Alex. Thank you, Tiffany. Thank you for listening to this episode of Paincast on Hypnosis. I hope you found it engaging and eye-opening. Since I've been running Paincast, I've come to learn that some prefer to listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts over Spotify. So I'm excited to update you that Paincast is also now available on Apple Podcasts. Please support our podcast by subscribing and rating it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Podbean, and share it with your network. Stay tuned for future episodes on pain and physiotherapy.